Hello, my name's Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Todd 1D and his first name, Browning. Best known during his lifetime as a close collaborator of Lon Chaney Sr. in mm-hmm. a number of silent shockers. Uh... <laughs> Best known to audiences today, perhaps as the director of the 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula, but most beloved among cinephiles as the director of 1932's Freaks. But among cinephiles as well, not usually held in that much of a high regard. Yeah, he's somebody who has his fans, uh, but it's not so much for his incredible mise-en-scene mm-hmm. or his facility with the camera, although I do think many of his movies have a lot of indelible imagery in them. Yes. It's more for his obsessions. He has a very uh, dark and twisted worldview. Many of his films deal with physical abnormalities. Many of his films deal with toxic family relationships, and many of his films are about Let's call it the incel lifestyle. Yes. Uh, incel is a perfect way to say that. You know, men who who have some sort of a disability who long after a woman who is out of reach. Sometimes they don't even have disabilities. Sometimes they're faking disabilities. Yes. And oh, they just want the woman to touch them. Mm-hmm. And usually at the end of the film, the men will do some evil mm-hmm. thing and have not a change of heart, but sacrifice themselves. The, the line between civilization and barbarism mm-hmm. is often uh, very tenuous in his movies movies. And, you know, because of all this, Dracula, even though it's, I think, still his best known movie, I wouldn't even call it one of his most characteristic movies. No. It doesn't have those obsessions Mm -hmm. in it. I would say that, like, Mark of the Vampire is more Todd Mm Browning-ish, things that interested him, than Dracula, the one that is mostly famous for Bela Lugosi's performance, let's be honest. Let's let's talk a little bit about Dracula. Okay. I didn't revisit it for this podcast. I did not either, because we did it on the Bela Lugosi episode. That's right. But let's get it out of the way a bit, because I actually kind of like Dracula. Uh, I think it's okay. I, I understand what you like about it as well it's like you got the big musty castles you got the cobwebs you got the bella doing a thing but i think most of what everyone likes about dracula comes in the first 20 minutes yes and after that it starts to become kind of rough sledding Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very stagey it's based on the stage version of dracula actually and you can't talk about todd browning's dracula without saying well uh, the spanish version is actually probably uh better directed than todd browning's and you know what It It is. is. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) There are so many scenes in Todd Browning's Dracula that there's no excuse to not have done them better. Mm -hmm. So the scene where Van Helsing pulls out the the box with the mirror in it and and shows Dracula's reflection and Dracula knocks it out of his hand. The way Browning films it, you're not even sure it's a mirror. Mm -hmm. You don't see the mirror. Uh, I mean, you just feel Browning like doing the journeyman job. Like, listen, this is what they want me to do. He hasn't even really made any kind of movie like this before. Like, the supernatural is something that seemed to disinterest him to the point that supernatural movies that he would make would end with them going, ha ha ha, it was all a ruse, because that's what interests him. Like, the idea of, like, trickery Mm -hmm. and circus folk and show, as opposed to, oh no, this is actually real, supernatural, unexplainable evil. Much of what's great about Dracula, I think, is attributable to the cinematography of Carl Freund, mm-hmm. the production design, and, you know, as you said, Bela Lugosi, who is, I think, the one really missing element of the Spanish version. Yes. It doesn't have a charismatic lead like that. Also, in Browning's Dracula, you don't even see Dracula killed. He gets killed off screen. But just as a point of comparison, we could compare it to the 1935's Mark of the Vampire, which 
on paper seems like, ah, yeah, Todd Browning, Bella Lugosi getting back together again. They're doing technically an unofficial sequel to Dracula because this is not a universal production. And what you get is not a Dracula film. Mm -hmm. What you get is, spoiler alert for a film that came out in 1935, not even a vampire movie. (laughs) It's just people think that it's a vampire and it's actually just a whole pretend thing to set up uh, the reveal of a murderer who reveals his murder by being hypnotized. There seems to be a lot of extra steps that were taken here. This movie's like 62 minutes, and uh, the, the first 60 minutes are great. Yeah, because you're like, oh yeah, uh, all this fun blood suckets going on. Even though Bella Lugosi, they might as well just taken like a wooden board of Bella Lugosi because he doesn't talk. Yeah, uh, most of the movie is dominated by Lionel Barrymore as the... I want to say Van Helsing type figure mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, really hams it up and chews the scenery and it unfolds on these great big gothic sets. You know, Browning kind of plagiarizes himself from Dracula a lot. There's even the shot of... Yeah, the armadillo going, walking yeah, by. Going through the, uh, yeah. the castle, yeah. Lots of good, like, big fake bats that are flying through the set. But, like, foggy cemeteries. Uh, like, I was watching Mark... We love the, that stuff, I was though. watching Mark of the Vampire and I was like, this has all the things I like in it. Until that... Scooby-Doo ending, ending. Which is ridiculous. Which is just the reveal that, oh, Bela Lugosi and um, his partner were just pretending to be vampires to get the person to confess. And in the final moments, you finally get, like, Bela Lugosi talking, saying, ah, this was so much fun! Like, we should do this again! Ah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That could only disappoint every child coming to see this movie. Yeah, like, yeah. no kid likes for it to be revealed that, oh, all the fun stuff you saw, that's not real. It was all a joke. And I mean, Mark of the Vampire is a remake of London After Midnight, which Mm -hmm. is the famous lost Todd Browning movie, where Lon Chaney appears as a monster in it, like you see all these Mm -hmm. stills. But that movie also ended with, oh, none of this is real. (laughs) So it's like, who cares? Yeah. Uh, But jumping back, Todd Browning's history. Like, where did he come from, Will? Uh, He was born in Louisville. He was raised in a pretty well-to-do family, but at age 16, he ran away to join the circus. He literally did that. Yes. And this, by the way, was at a time when, I don't know if the circus is still held in high regard now, but at the time, it was definitely not held in high regard. (laughs) Like, if you joined the circus, you were on the fringes of society. But back then, that's when the circuses were great. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's when there were no human rights laws. No, nothing. People were just exploited and like was cheap. Mm-hmm. So among the things that Todd Browning did when he was at the circus were he was buried alive mm. repeatedly and they would have this like tube that would, you know, go six feet under that spectators could come and look and see him buried very alive. <laughs> and then, you know, during slow periods, they'd like drop, you know, a bit of water down for him and he would, he would drink like he would be down there for like 24 hours. I don't know how he went to the bathroom. Maybe I, he didn't. I mean, it makes sense that this would be an extension to what would obsess him in cinema. This idea of an individual suffering mm-hmm. for his art and for entertainment, whether it be the stories telling or what Lon Chaney Sr. is doing to himself. This week, I read the, I think, definitive biography of Todd Brown. Probably the only one that will ever exist. Dark Carnival by David Skull and Elias Savada. And as it points out, it's very little is known about Todd Browning's early life. Uh, even some of the things we hear about him performing at carnivals has been exaggerated because most of what we know about his early life comes from Studio Ballyhoo. Just making up stuff to make him seem more interesting. Yeah, but we do know that he ran away from home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things were not good in his home life and perhaps that informs the 
uh, toxic worldview. That, that yeah, I mean, if you're going to run from home, your life probably sucks. Yeah. And that definitely like is seen, as you said, in the movies that he made because Todd Browning's not a man that's known for his comedy or even his comedic scenes. He's mm-hmm. known for misery and a kind of gruesomeness that could only exist before the Hayes Code came into existence. Another defining event in his life came in 1915, I believe, when he was driving his car speeding with a car full of party guests and he crashed it and most people in the car died except for him. Uh, and somebody else survived as well, okay. but they were injured very badly. Yeah. And, and Browning himself was injured quite badly in it as well. I know that he had dentures before that, but he... He lost his front teeth yeah, in the yeah, process. Yeah. And, like, he was already in the film industry at that point. He got started in the way that a lot of people do. Like, uh, he actually knew uh, D.W. Griffith, and they acted together in some one-reelers. Todd Browning did a bunch of, like, comedy skit. He was famous for using a cane and how he could, like, trip over his legs. Browning also worked with Max Sennett mm-hmm. uh, at Keystone and uh, Browning was an extra in D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Intolerance. Yeah. And, you know, transitioned into a career, as so many did, directing two reelers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you look at his filmography, essentially like eight-tenths of Todd Browning's directorial efforts are just lost to time. They're gone. They were destroyed or they were forgotten. Mm-hmm. And like the features that still exist are just like a little chunk of what he did. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to watch them and be like, well, are these what always obsessed him? Or are these the culmination of like what he discovered? Like, ah, this interests me. So I will revisit these mm-hmm. things over and over and over again with his best pal, Lon Chaney Sr. The surviving films, I think, are probably like 50% hack work and mm-hmm. then 50% stuff that he threw his passions and his uh, uh, weird preoccupations in. And, you know, some of his major films, like London After Midnight, are lost to the sands of time. I, For somebody who is not particularly well-regarded as a, like, technical filmmaker, he was one of the early directors to be influenced by German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. So a film like one of his breakthrough films, The Unholy Three, you know, has... Uh, a famous shot of shadows cast against a wall. So, like, I don't know, like, he has this reputation as not being technically adept, but I Mm. think there are lots of, like, incredible images in his film. I think it's there, and I think that, like, his reputation rests a lot on Dracula Mm -hmm. and that like people seeing it and it's a classic Mm -hmm. and then being disappointed by it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you can watch his earlier films and I know me and you watched a lot this week Mm -hmm. to just get a better idea of who he was and you do see his preoccupations and one of them is not necessarily being that exciting Mm -hmm. in his stories yeah because like the Lon Chaney ones and he made 10 features with Lon Chaney Sr. They're really about tortured individuals who drive themselves out of the point of insanity, almost always to the point of death. One that we both watched and we both really liked was The Unknown. Yeah, after Freak's Dracula, The Unknown is the one that people go to. Mm -hmm. And it's famous for also being cut, but that also means that it wraps up at a sweet 50, like 55 minutes. Love it, love it. (laughs) And Uh, it doesn't feel like you're missing anything. (laughs) Lon Chaney Sr. stars in this film as a armless man, or is he? Wink. An arm man who works at the circus, you know, throwing knives with his feet. Mm-hmm. He loves one of the performers at the circus and and he he longs after her and she'll often say in the film, oh, I, I hate men's hands. Yeah, I can't herself. stand them uh, touching me. And Lon Chaney Sr. is like, ah, I'm your friend. I will always stick by you. And she's like, oh, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have you here as 
a friend. <laughs> and then Lon Chaney uh, goes to his uh, trailer where, whoa, he reveals he actually does have arms. And his assistant and him plot on how they can make Joan Crawford fall in love with him. You know, it would be spoiler territory to talk about what happens after this. And I do think people should watch this movie. <laughs> uh, uh, what's the most extreme kind <laughs> of um, thing that you can do if you're in love with a woman that you assume will love an armless man and you're just faking it? Ah, well, you'll, you'll have to see to find out. And then what happens if uh, she doesn't even go for you after that? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, you swear revenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the man that she loves, who, uh, which you see in a few Todd Browning films, is a circus strong man. <laughs> uh, this archetype of uh, a frustrated uh, man who is either an incel or has been cuckolded, to mm-hmm. use the uh, parlance of our times, mm-hmm. recurs in West of Zanzibar, which we also also both watched, probably liked a little bit less. And if you're not familiar with Lon Chaney Sr.'s work, especially with Todd Browning, his thing is, how can he physically mutilate himself and appear on screen in a different way? So in The Unknown, he plays uh, with his arms supposedly very painfully tied behind his back, so it doesn't look like he has arms. And in uh, West of Zanzibar, he plays a man who's been paralyzed, who has to drag his legs along with him throughout most of the movie. This one was based on a stage play with some very notable changes from the play. The plot is that Cheney has this long feud with this man who has had an affair with his wife um and then his wife runs off with this man comes back with a child who cheney assumes is the other guy's kid and and cheney says okay i'm gonna dedicate my life to revenge (laughs) yeah i am gonna ruin this guy's daughter's life uh, Mm -hmm. for for 18 years and in the original stage play he goes to this island where he becomes a dr moreau like figure yes uh and he puts the daughter into a life as a sex worker at a local brothel until she gets syphilis. They changed that in the film, so now <laughs> he still goes to the island and he still rules it, but the daughter is now an alcoholic. And uh, like a lot of these Lon Chaney, Todd Browning films, it takes place in a very exotic, racistly depicted location. Yeah. So it's obvious that like, Todd Browning likes these out there places, mm-hmm. but you know, like most people working in Hollywood or as someone who made a career you know, early when he was acting, performing in blackface, he presents <laughs> them in the most stereotypical and offensive ways possible. Sure. Um, very atmospheric, though, gotta yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, it is. He actually cast actual uh, black actors as opposed to people in blackface, right. which a lot of other movies did, but that's, you know... It, you it's definitely it. a film of its time, let's say. Uh, but West of Zanzibar builds to its old boy-like twist <laughs> where, oh man, I hope people listen to this have seen old boy, because we're about to spoil it. Let's, let's spoil West of Zanzibar, because we're not necessarily recommending this no, one. No, we're not. Turns out it was Lon Chaney's daughter the whole time. Oh, no! Oh, and also part of the plot was that, you know, his his enemy would come there, and if he kills his enemy, it's the tribal ritual that if a man dies, then he has to be burned along with his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. So the daughter was also going to be burned, but then they have to sneak the daughter off the island. And you know. Lon Chaney like in the unknown, sacrifices himself at the last moment for the greater good. And these sacri- After ruining her life for 18 and years. And these sacrifices are really interesting because they're based in the idea that what he's doing is true, mm. that like his actual emotions are dedicated to this. When these movies have shown these people to be petty, petulant monsters, yeah. who if they were threatened would probably let the other person die in an instant, because they have dedicated themselves to this awful revenge. This is a recurring thing in the Cheney Browning movies, where at the end uh, Cheney 
never gets the girl. Mm -hmm. The Unholy Three, which is another one that I watched, it's about three circus sideshow performers who become a crime syndicate together. Uh, Cheney plays an old woman dressed as an old woman, and there's a little person who plays a baby, literally (laughs) the baby, and uh, there's a strong man who helps them with the muscle. Uh, The strong man really got the, like, easiest job on the Unholy Three. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, at the end of the movie, uh, you know, somebody dies in the Mm. movie, but at the end of the movie, Cheney he confesses so that somebody else doesn't go to jail. The law is lenient on him, but he still doesn't get the girl that he's been longing for through the whole movie. It almost feels like the Hollywood system is trying to struggle with the idea that Lon Chaney is playing bad people, but he's starring in these movies. Mm -hmm. So he can't just be defeated at the end and be unrepentant, Mm -hmm. because then why did we follow this person the entire time? Mm -hmm. Even though those endings are completely the antithesis of what the film is leading up to there. And what do you think of Lon Chaney's performances in these films? I really like them. I mean, he's just like this, like, smirking, struggling, in-pain figure in all of them, anger furrowing his brows. West of Zanzibar is kind of interesting because, you know, in most of his movies, he had that nickname, The Man of a Thousand Faces. Mm. In most of the movies, he's heavily made up and unrecognizable, but in West of Zanzibar, he basically just uses his face. Yeah, uh, and, and I mean, that's the most interesting part about Lon Chaney. And he really, you know, really throws his face into it. I got to watch Where East is East, which came out in 1929, and I feel a little bit bummed you didn't get to watch it, Will, because it was actually the one I enjoyed the most out of that whole cycle. Okay. Where Lon Chaney plays a uh, man whose daughter is getting married to a guy. And you're like, oh, Chaney's going to hate this guy. But do, through circumstances, he, ha- he actually learns to like the guy. But then suddenly when they go on a business trip carrying a bunch of lions, they meet a woman who is supposed to be an Asian woman, the stereotypical dragon lady, as these films would often deal with, who seduces his daughter's fiance, And you learn that this woman is also his daughter's mother. Mm. So there's like another like incestual kind of thing that's going along. And in this one, Cheney is actually pretty much the good guy. He's the one trying to push things in the right direction. And it's his daughter and her fiance who are going through all these complications and this terrible, like, uh, motherly figure who gets involved in. Oh, it ends the only way these movies can. Uh, Gorilla gets loose and murders (laughs) any of the bad people. (laughs) I will watch this movie because this won't be my last go around in the career of Todd Browning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm eager to see this. And finally, we save the best for last, Freaks. Mm -hmm. One of the, I would say, most famous horror movies that has ever been made, I would say. By the way, horror movie is an interesting uh, term to use for any of the Todd Browning films. Because, you know, this is the first Shocktober episode, by the mm-hmm. way. I don't think we mentioned that. <laughs> ah, there we go. <laughs> Okay, uh, we got that out of the way. Yep. Todd Browning was making these movies before the horror film was really a genre in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there were mysteries and there were, uh, you know, shockers and thrillers and... Uh, and look at Germany, like Dr. Yeah. Caligari, kind of like expressionist nightmares. Mm-hmm. But like the genre conventions of the horror film that would often be defined with the universal monster pictures, mm-hmm. like Todd Browning would participate, but he was working way before that. And people like Bella Le- Gossi, when they became famous, were often referred to as, like, Mystery Man, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like the famous Ben Stiller film. <laughs> <laughs> mystery Men. Of course, all the famous horror movie characters coming together to stop some crime. <laughs> but Freaks is where, like, uh, it all comes together. This is the movie that all of his weird obsessions have been building up towards. A film 
with a cast mostly of actual circus uh, sideshow people. Mm -hmm. Which means that the film walks a fine line, and many people agree or disagree, of whether it's exploitation of these people or it's a sympathetic portrait of their day-to-day life. When it came out, it was famously not a success. Mm -hmm. Most of the reviews, not all, but most, were very unfavorable and just sort of treated it as, why would Hollywood do this? This is such a symbol of Hollywood excess and we need censorship. Many of the reviews seemed upset that they just had to look at people with these deformities. The idea that you would put these people's deformities on screen to see my clean eyes. How dare you offend me like this? I mean, and they would usually wrap it up this idea that oh you're exploiting them you know it would be better if these people were just locked away where nobody could where see them where they could them. perform at the circuses where they get enjoyment and they live their lives and, and good people wouldn't have to see them because mm. that would be exploitative <laughs> and the thing about Freaks is that it's not really a horror film until the last 15 minutes mm-hmm. and most of the film is spent with these characters just going by their day to day life and getting involved in these small melodramas that are only odd if you consider that these are not who you see on screen all the time. And you get rapidly desensitized to how strange they are. There's the first shot where you see them frolicking in the forest, Mm -hmm. where, you know, there are a number of, the incorrect term is pinheads, Mm -hmm. but that's how they're referred. There's uh, a guy with no legs who moves by his arms. There's a guy with no arms or legs uh, who's I think they actually, again, the exploitative name like Torso Boy. The human torso. The human torso. Who lights a cigarette using only his mouth, which Mm. has to be seen to be believed. By the way, that guy in real life had a kid. I remember reading about this. Think about that. I mean, do not look into the lives of the people who appeared in the film, because a lot of them are very miserable. The man without legs had a very vicious robbery happen to him, and his life did not pick up from there. But, you know, some of them had okay lives. Mm-hmm. Some of them had roller coaster lives, like the conjoined twins, Daisy and Violet, I believe are their names. They were up for most of their lives up until this movie came out were basically slaves Mm -hmm. they would be toured around you know by their by their sinister guardians but before this movie came out they were able to sue and get separated from their guardian and then they more or less spent the rest of their career on their own terms Mm -hmm. you know doing the same kind of work yeah but there's difference between slavery and you know but But the movie so the first time you see all these people it's a huge shock but then but the film also treats it like we know that you're going to act shocked because there's passerbys are like how dare you have these these people out here mm-hmm. like get them out of here and you see that they're just scared mm-hmm. and they were just having fun minding their own business mm-hmm. and the idea that these passerbys are like ah oh, get them out of here get them out of here and they're like no they're, they're just fine like they're oh, okay because that's how society treats them and then you see them at this stop that the carnival has taken and they all have their own little lives little dramas you know the conjoined twins uh, each have fiancés. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great bit where one of them kisses her fiancé and the other one, you know, looks up in ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. Because I guess, and then, you know, you look at that and think, well, what else can she feel? <laughs> right? Uh, maybe nothing because they don't share those nerves, but who knows? Maybe nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see uh, Schlitzy, who is my favorite character. Uh, the human skeleton has just had a baby with the bearded lady. Yeah. Uh, and they're very happy that this happened. And like... there's a real sense of community that develops with all these people. But uh-oh, when um, the temptress Cleopatra and the strongman Hercules get involved, they find out that one of the um, little performers, uh, Hans, played by Harry Earls, has a large fortune and that perhaps if one of them were to marry him and Hans would die, they would get that fortune for themselves. 
Hans, who is engaged to be married to Frida, uh, played by Daisy Earls, who is actually his sister in real mm. life. He is tempted by Cleopatra, who he calls the most beautiful big woman I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, eventually Hans marries Cleopatra, which leads to the most famous scene of the movie. One of us, one of us. Where, she, you know, in seeing this this table full of so-called freaks. Just happy. Yeah, just, just like, happy. And inducting her into the freak community. Yeah, you're like, listen, now you're part of our family, and we can consider you one of our own. You are not an outsider anymore. But you no, married Hans. She doesn't she hates want it. that. Yeah. She doesn't want that. And she launches onto her plot to murder Hans. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Which involves some poisoning. But, but you know, this is a community. So, yeah. you know, you, you hurt one, you hurt them all. Which leads to a horrifying finale. Which we- is still horrifying, I Yes, think. it is. Where uh, the freaks decide to fight back against Cleopatra and Hercules, who the film actually sets up in a way that, like, maybe these freaks were going to kill them anyway, but they're attacking Hans already. Like, Mm -hmm. they want to kill him, and they're just coming to his defense in the most... Like, Todd Browning shoots it in a way where it is scary. No music. No, that the otherness is supposed to be like, Mm. whoa, because you have, like, the living torso crawling through the mud with a knife between his teeth. And this is what I talk about when I say there are amazing images in Todd Browning's movies. Yes. You know? And it all builds to this sequence that the film ends on where it's genuinely horrifying when you see it. Still, the, the reveal of what's happened to her. And we should point out that this film is also famous for being cut of like 25 minutes Mm -hmm. so it's about an hour in the form that it exists now but there's supposed to be like i don't think any scenes as horrifying as what you see but the same kind of horror and melodrama and comedy a lot of uh, todd browning films are famous for being cut down freaks is the most famous one because it does end with them cornering cleopatra and then suddenly you go back to what bookended the film a carnival barker talking about the freaks which was supposedly a reshoot that they mm. added at the end of the movie mm. and you finally see what happened to cleopatra which is i'd rather not spoil it oh you don't want to spoil yeah, it yeah. okay yeah if you haven't let, seen freaks let them see it for themselves like you like we can say it and like i've read about it before i saw it like a decade ago but when you actually see it you're like oh that's gross and richly deserved and I you f- and you don't fully comprehend what you're looking at mm. when you do see it for the first time you like it takes a second to sink in because like originally hercules a strong man was supposed to be castrated by the freaks <laughs> and the joke was that you would see him singing falsetto at the end of the movie and like that's the indication that he's been like his balls have been yeah, cut off yeah. uh, but it's i think quite a beautiful film mm-hmm. in many ways like uh well, it's a film that I don't think had come before and has come since because mm-hmm. you just can't make a movie like that mm-hmm. it, it, because it deals so directly with the experience they have in this exploitative milieu, mm-hmm. the circus, but also the way that they deal with it and the connections that they make and the way that they live their lives. And it really humanizes them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, one reason why uh, the movie was so unloved at the time and why movies like this have never really been made is that, like, audiences don't want to look at these people. Yeah. You know, it's as simple as that. That they are the other, and that, like, Mm -hmm. what Todd Browning is doing is so sympathetic, the idea of, like, oh, no, but they are real people. Mm -hmm. But audiences, like, from the get-go, they just will not connect with that on any level. They won't even give it a chance to do that. But the thing is, 
This movie never quite disappeared because Dwayne Esper, the mm-hmm. famous schlockmeister, licensed it to play at grindhouses and, you know, road shows. And he played it for, I want to say, 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, MGM, after it initially failed at the box office, just wanted nothing to do with it. And this is a very strange movie to come out of MGM, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like, MGM is the most glamorous studio. Yeah, like, I don't know what they expected to get from Todd Brow, maybe one of his other pop boilers, but, like, this is a film that I can understand producers seeing and being like, well, this is not what we ask for. And Todd Browning's like, you wanted a film with, like, circus people. What else do you want? Well, there is a famous story that Irving Thalberg, the boy wonder producer at MGM, who brought Todd Browning to MGM, when he commissioned a script for this movie, he said, uh, give me something horrifying. And yeah. then two weeks later, the writer walks into his office, and Browning's got, like, his head on his desk and said, well, I asked for something horrifying, and I got it. Who knows if that's actually true? But I feel that, like, audiences would have liked it better if they were just treated like monsters the entire way through. Like, if it was a circus that showed up and that you know started murdering people like i would have been like ah yeah this is fun but the idea of you having to spend time with them like audiences don't like that like i don't want to humanize these people that i want to treat as like others and monsters well you know it's complicated because so mainstream audiences Mm -hmm. the audiences who would go to the nice theaters were okay with uh lon cheney playing a disabled person because he's a normal person playing a disabled person but not with the real thing however this movie would play very successfully on the grindhouse circuit for 25 years before Mm -hmm. it was rediscovered by Mm -hmm. you know auteur critics and the counterculture in the 60s and 70s but before that many people went to see it because they want to look at the freaks yeah so like this dual nature exists in all of us Mm -hmm. right and i mean the film can be successful in either form really yeah and after freaks that was like a real tough hit to Todd Browning, who had tried to make good with Dracula, and it seemed like that's just what they wanted from him. Like, he made Mark of the Vampire three years after, in 1935. In 1936, he made The Devil Doll, where he wasn't even credited on it. And I mean, you hear the title, The Devil Doll, and you're like, oh boy. Nah, it's just old hammy Lionel Barrymore doing his Mrs. Doubtfire shtick, dressed <laughs> as a woman, creating little people who are actually pretty ingeniously projected on screen, but they're just little people. They're not actual dolls, which would have been awesome. And he's taking revenge on people. Mark of the Vampire was a modest success, but Mm. it really feels like, especially after you watch Freaks and you watch some of his silent movies, it really feels like a retreat into the familiar. Well, yeah, a lot of people would say that Todd Browning never made the transition from silence to talkies, Mm -hmm. that he just could never grasp it. He was never good with dialogue. No, he was not. And so he ended up being one of those directors that was just kind of put to Mm -hmm. pasture, that like, he died in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But, like, he stopped making movies and then 1939 was his last one. And none of the other movies after Freaks, aside from Mark of the Vampire, mm-hmm. were a success. So I would still say that, like, after watching all these Todd Browning films, none of them popped out at me and were like, aha, no, he is really great. It's just that he has his obsessions. And while he can craft an image if he's working with someone like Carl Freund, a amazing cinematographer, but I don't think that interested him. Mm-hmm. I think what interested him was, like, Lon Chaney's tortured performance. Mm -hmm. Like, I was reading some stories of when he shot uh, Mark of the Vampire that he was supposedly, like, a terrible taskmaster. And that, like, he would make sure the bat would fly, like, a very specific way or that it looked this way. And he would always complain to all of the actors, ugh, Lon Chaney would know how to do this. Many of the people who worked on Freaks described him as a sadist. Yes. Uh, But he apparently got along very well with the Freaks. Mm -hmm. So, like, I guess it was a weird place where... 
He wanted these very specific things, but he couldn't deliver what mainstream audiences wanted in this talky era. I think I like him a bit more than you do. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Freaks alone, it's like... He well, has, I mean, he Freaks has, is so good. He has that one masterpiece. And the other ones, I like his weird, gross obsessions. Yeah, I, I guess his obsessions yeah. don't really, yeah. like, reflect what interests me. And yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. it comes down to. Like, this Lon Chaney, like, woman that he wants and he'll do anything for. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I was 12, I'd be like, yeah, Lon Chaney, I can get on his I think I just like somebody who has a worldview that dark yeah. uh, and who was, Keeps working. <laughs> was able to flourish in the studio system for mm -hmm. a while. And it was until like the studio system was like, all right, but you got to deliver some entertainment. Like that's what people want. Yeah, there's also an element of mystery to him for me as well, because he never gave an interview about his filmmaking. And he had no interest. Supposedly, yeah. when he stopped making movies, he just went on with his life and did other stuff that wasn't related to movies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? I can see it. I, I can see where, like, that kernel of, like, ooh, I want to see more of his, yeah. because you want to discover, like, who was this person, Todd Browning, who made one of the most well-known films, Dracula, ever, mm -hmm. and, like, we know almost nothing about him. Yeah. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we're talking about vampires. Uh, but not the kind that you know. We're talking about hopping vampires. We focus on the classic Hong Kong cinema film, Mr. Vampire, and we kind of talk about why we're interested in that kind of stuff. Mm. And we even recommend a few films from the canon. You should mm. check it out. Uh, I think hopping vampire films are very special, and I just want to share it with as many people as I want. Impress your friends, go to Halloween parties, and be like, oh, I have a different horror film. And you can just slide Mr. Vampire or other films that we mentioned across the table and impress everybody there. And watch them be like, I don't like this. <laughs> no, you'll love it. Oh, you mean with the other people? The, the other the other people won't like it. Yeah, but you'll like it. You'll That's like what's it. important. Yeah. So it's $5 a month. Uh, you get four episodes every month. And this month we're doing nothing but horror stuff. And I can say that we're also going to be talking about like the rougher horror stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> stuff that we wouldn't want people searching our name and finding <laughs> out. So definitely become a Patreon subscriber for that. Our first letter is from Sam Sanchez. And he goes, hello, guys. First time writing in, I believe, though I've been listening for about two years now. You guys are somehow one of maybe four Canadian film podcasts I listen to, which makes a lot of sense living in California and all. How dare you stop listening to those other podcasts? Wait, are there other Canadian film podcasts? <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's Michael and Us. Michael and Us. And there's also No Such Thing as a Bad Movie. Right. Uh, Important Cinema Club. I guess if you're listening to some back episodes of Loose Cannons. Yeah. There's four right you're there. You're right. Yeah, you're there right. is four uh, Canadian film podcasts. So you're good. And the letter continues. I pretty much watch along with you guys episode to episode. Ooh, that's dedication. <laughs> as most episodes are a good way to force myself to catch up on stuff that have been on my watch list anyway. Kind of linked to your discussion about making lists for an occasion or time of year, like Shocktober, and plowing through it, which I intend to try this year, I did something similar this month. Another podcast I listened had their second annual Czechtember to honor the Czech New Wave, and I decided to dive head-on and watch a Justin the Clue level of films to cross off <laughs> as many Czech films I had on my watch list. I ended up watching over 50, according to my letterbox. 
which is insane, being on vacation with nothing better to do has been key. Um, watching so many of these has been such a rich experience and leads me to believe this would make a good episode, or at the very least, I'd be curious to hear your opinion on some of these. There's a few key musts to check out, and some that are also more obscure. Some very fun movies in there mixed among some not-so-fun, yet still great movies. An episode to hopefully keep in mind for the future. Thanks, guys. Keep it up. Sam, Patreon supporter Sanchez. Ooh, that, that's nice. So Is that his real name? Yeah. <laughs> Did you legally change your name? Because it should be the Important Cinema Club Patreon supporter you know Sanchez. Waiting for for the first person to do a tattoo of our logo. <laughs> um, don't actually do don't that. Don't do that, please. No, no. What would we give them? Our gratitude. Uh, I think they would get to choose a topic. <laughs> yeah, they would choose a topic. I mean, for that. Yeah. I mean, we should do like uh, another fan contest coming up. First in person to get a tattoo. <laughs> no, <laughs> don't do that. Um, so as far as Czech films go, they've been a little. I feel like talked about a lot recently. I think a bunch of DVD box sets come out. Not something I'm that familiar with, if I've got to be honest. Mm. And I don't want to say any movies that I'm like, ah, I very like this Czech film because I'm probably going to get them confused with other countries. But let's just put it out there that folks watch some Czech movies. Yeah. Thank you for this letter, Sam. Mm. And you should go and check it them out. Not Czech. Them out. out. And that would be an interesting subject to do because me and Will have been talking about doing, you know, kind of countries. Yeah, national cinemas. That like people don't, talk about that often mm-hmm. that if we did a director people would be like well i don't know who that is so mm-hmm. national cinemas like we did with that bollywood episode are a good like entry points mm-hmm. so again thanks for that letter uh patreon supporter sam sanchez and if you have any other questions for us comments other listeners not particular just sam uh email us at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com hopefully they're spooky this month because we are officially in shocktober at this I want to suck your blood. Well, I don't know if a whip sound is very Halloween-y, but sure. <laughs> uh, so next week, staying spooky because we're doing full moon entertainment. And you're like, wait, what's that? If you were a kid in the 90s and you walked into the horror section of your local video store, you would see all these painted covers mostly filled with puppets and you'd go wow what is this and i'd be like puppet master three there's a cowboy in this one well i can't imagine seeing these movies these films were all spearheaded by a man named charles band and full moon video or entertainment or productions or whatever the other dozen names that he would call uh his video label were something that i feel hasn't been recreated since and could only exist at the beginning of the video boom which is making films just for video that created a cult around them. There was a fan club. You could buy action figures. And he mostly dealt in horror films. Puppet Master, Castle Freak, Head of the Family, comedic pictures that dealt with horror iconography. And we're going to be talking about the company and specifically Charles Band himself, the man. What movies should I watch? You should watch Castle Freak. That's the one where a guy gets his ding-dong ripped off. I don't know. You'll have to watch to find out. Puppet Master, because that's probably Full Moon's most iconic production, and that they continue to make new movies to this day, even though a studio also owns the rights to Puppet Master and are making parallel Puppet Master films. But we'll get into that when we talk about the episode. And I want you to watch Ginger Dead Man 2, The Passion of the Crust. And you'll be like, well, should I watch the first Ginger Dead Man? Nah, you don't need to. They sum it up over, I think, 10 minutes Mm -hmm. uh, in the second one. And it's also a kind of like satirical rib poke at what Full Moon used 
used to be. Mm. This production studio that, as uh, Charles Van said when he started, we want to make 2,000 movies by the year 2000. So we'll talk about Charles Van and this insane dream next week. Did they get to that number? They did not. Okay. And we'll talk about why that is and why Charles Van has made a million companies since then. <laughs> so until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you haven't yet, to follow us on Facebook. Uh, we have a group now, The Important Cinema Club. Just do it in the search bar. You'll be able to bring it up. And to follow us on Twitter, which you can do again just by searching Important Cinema Club. And this week, check out FilmTrap.com because I put together, for October, a Shocktober movie checklist. Essentially, uh, 31 categories that you need to slot in with a movie if you want to watch 31 movies in October. And it's just to push your boundaries with things like a luchador film where uh, they fight monsters or a silent horror movie after the invention of sound. And you just have to go out there, find the movies, watch them, complete this list. And for people that do, there will be something special at the end of October. If you have any questions or you don't know which movies to fill the list, again, tweet at us or join us on the Facebook group, The Important Cinema Club. When you were a kid, Will, what were some of the most notable costumes that you dressed up as? Uh, I dressed up as... For Halloween, not just every day. Yeah, I dressed up as Batman three times. (laughs) Three times? Did your mother have to put a hand on your shoulder and go... That's enough. Like, that, too many dress-ups. Well, I do remember, you know, I'd wear my Batman costumes uh, oftentimes, you know, not on Halloween as well. Like, I would... I remember, <laughs> Fight crime. I remember going to the grocery store once in my Batman costume, and people would, like, you know, point and say, hey, it's Batman. And remember, I would have been five so at the like, time. So you're like, yes! Yeah, exactly. I, I thought, yeah, they actually think I'm Batman. <laughs> and then I remember uh, my dad and I were going to go to the library, and I said, oh, I, I'm going to go get my Batman <laughs> costume. And he said, oh, you, you shouldn't do that. And I said, why not? And my dad said, well, you know, if if you, people see Batman at the library, they may think there's a crime, and <laughs> we wouldn't want to upset people. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and now, looking back, I can appreciate how funny that was. <laughs> at least he didn't say, like, the Joker's gonna come after you if he thinks you're the real Batman. Oh, yeah. So that you lay down terrified Very scary. <laughs> he picked the um, actual good parental uh, line that he fed you to keep his dumb boy from dressing up as Batman and going into public. My first Batman costume... <laughs> Uh, my mom made it yep. and, and I was so excited. I really wanted it. And then I remember the day, I still remember it, the day that she showed it to me in the closet mm-hmm. and I was like afraid of it. It was <laughs> really? like almost too awe-inspiring a symbol. <laughs> oh, so it seemed like this was probably a costume that Batman himself wore. Well, it's like, it's just this symbol of goodness. And like, how can, <laughs> how can, I'm not even worthy of wearing it. And so, yeah. You know, my mom will still tell this story that, like, you know, we had to work bit by bit, like, okay, just touch it, like, maybe put put on the mask, <laughs> oh and, like, like, work your way up to being Did able to wear the Did you feel powerful Batman. when you were under it? Oh. So how old were you at this point? Five, I guess? I think uh, my first Batman costume was when I was four, <laughs> okay. and then, or it might have been before that, maybe I was three, I don't know. I remember my mother getting me a Captain America costume. Which is baffling to me because, one, I wasn't allowed to read comic books. Mm -hmm. And even if I did, I wasn't reading Captain America. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I was a fan of, like, the Albert Pune films or anything like that. (laughs) So I could only make the assumption that it was in the discount bin somewhere. And it's the only reason that I got it. Captain America was not a popular superhero in the 90s. No, he was not. And, like, I guess maybe because of that... When I was growing up, other than a costume that was the skeleton mascot for the Goosebump book series, I don't even have that many vivid memories of d- 
dressing up in costume. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was maybe a thing that my birthday is on November 1st, which is right after Halloween. So there's kind of like a excitement building towards it. And it's always been weird, I feel, for my mother to like, we're really excited for Halloween. And then we're really excited for your birthday. Mm. So she would like quietly slip through like, maybe, you know, you can dress up in a generic ghost and you can just go do your trick-or-treating. And then like the next day is the real party because that's when your birthday is. Yeah. So like as far as stuff that was like inspired by movies that I would dress up as, I never had like a Batman. And to this day, for the last decade, I don't think I've properly dressed up in a Halloween costume since. Do you like go to movies and you're like, well, fifth time for Batman this year? Or do you go like, I'm going to dress up as something else? Um, well, I don't really dress, dress up, up anymore. <laughs> uh, or if I do dress up for like a Halloween thing, it'll just be the most perfunctory <laughs> yeah, thing. Like um, you're going to put like a mask on that you bought yeah, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, basically. I do have like a Darth Vader mask that I have like... And, and a little cape that I'll sometimes Wait, put on. you and your girlfriend aren't like, couples costume this year, Mickey and Minnie Mouse. You know, we haven't talked about it yet. Oh, it's, we're still first early. year. We're yeah. still early. There's going to have to be that conversation. You know what? I'll give her a call and we can have that conversation. We, we were together for Halloween last year, but we just didn't. Okay, uh, yeah. But that, it was new, though. Now yeah. it's, it's people... Uh, well, now that we're firmly entrenched as a couple, like, <laughs> like yeah. is now the time for couples Halloween costumes? <laughs> to be know. that annoying people that show up and you're like, oh my God. You, you're telling me you and Emily have never done a couple's costume uh we did we dressed up as i was frankenstein as a secret agent and she <laughs> was bride of frankenstein as a secret agent but i think that was a real like yeah whatever there is right like, let's just put it on and that's what we'll be so it's like a really vague niche costume so just wearing a tie <laughs> yeah. and, a, and a jacket that you have to explain to the person yeah. um and other than that she's usually done like very vivid like she was furiosa one year and she built her whole costume and stuff like that and me i just probably sat there in a vampire cape of some kind. I dressed as Jerry Lewis once in college. <laughs> Did you have to explain it I, to I, people? Well, of course. But like, yeah. but my friends knew who it was, and that's yeah. all that mattered. Like, I, I put bright gleam in my hair. and uh, So wait, which Jerry Lewis were you? Like, telethon era. Oh, wait, so like sweaty and yeah, fat Yeah, old, older Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Oh, so you weren't like, uh, hey, ladies! Well, you I, like wacky well of course ladies. I did that, too. But it was like you... Yeah. So you're doing that amazing thing where you have to do, like, the tired shtick of Jerry Lewis... Two levels of acting there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like thinking about all these costumes, like I was still obsessed with horror movies when I was a kid and I would see all the family movies. Do you have any memories, and I'm just tying this in because we're doing a screening of it in a week, of Casper the family film? Oh, uh, yeah, The Friendly Ghost. <laughs> yes. Um, well, yeah, I had it on VHS as a kid, but it was never a particular favorite of mine. No? I mean, I, well, I probably saw it seven or eight times, but <laughs> yeah. just because I saw every movie seven or eight times back then. And it's such a weird movie. It's about death and people dying and turning into ghosts. I mean, Eric Idle is in it. It's all you Monty Python heads. That's right. Eric Idle and Kathy Moriarty are the And, ones. I mean, Dan Aykroyd is in it, playing his Ghostbuster character. There's also the scene where Bill Pullman's face turns into <laughs> Mel, Mel Gibson and yep. uh, somebody else, the right? The Crypt Keeper and yeah. um, I Don't Get No Respect. Oh, Rodney Dangerfield, right. <laughs> You know, because the kids love Clint Eastwood, Rodney Dangerfield, Mel Gibson, and the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. So really what I'm trying to say is that if you live in Toronto, you got to come to the screening we're doing next weekend at the Royal Cinema of Casper the Friendly Ghost. When are you going to see it other than that? Uh, 35 millimeter, I hope. <laughs> no, no, not on 35 millimeter. But there will be candy and tons of games and ghost-related stuff. And I think the one thing that if you live in Toronto and you have kids... 
we put together like a pre-show mm. with like full animated cartoons as if you were like going to see a movie in I guess like the 50s or 60s <laughs> for 30 minutes before the film and you're not going to get that anywhere else so come to the Royal Cinema come see Casper have yourself a spooky time <laughs>